Hi, and thank you for tuning in to Compound Performance Radio. We're your hosts, Matt Domney and Kyle Dobbs. Thank you for tuning in. We hope you enjoy the show. Here, Jim, you got to take it away. All right. We are back once again with our good friend, Mike T. Nelson. We now have to actually, because generally Dean and I talk about, we just say Mike T, but we're starting to realize there become is becoming a plethora of Mike T's in the yep. fitness uh, landscape. So we now have to delineate which Mike T we're talking about. This is, it's becoming, uh, it's becoming overwhelming at this yeah, point. Too many mics and fitness in general. Yeah, it's, it's, it seems like a common name. I don't know the stats on it, but it's probably pretty common. Less common than Jeb and Dean. Less common than Jeb. Yeah. But we are going to, uh, I don't know what we're going to talk about today. We're, you know, probably going to delve into, we were kind of chatting a little bit beforehand. Um, you know, one of the things we talk about a lot about is uh, kind of this, this idea of, um, exercise versus non-exercise, constrained energy, like kind of, you know, what what can we parse from all the recent research um, that at times seems to be um, contradictory, but in reality, as uh, Mike alluded to, and we'll, we'll kind of get into a little bit, it actually is complementary um, and it helps to explain it when you look at it in context and kind of, kind of what we see in the research. Um, but kind of like just, you know, we're just going to talk a little bit, I think, about kind of what we've seen come up and, and you know, through experience, what we've seen uh, be successful with people and um, how utilizing both exercise and non-exercise activity uh, can aid in both body composition, sports performance and all of these things. Um, and just by being able to increase energy availability, which I think is the real uh, big bonus there. So um, anyways, I, I guess kind of like let's just go with it. Yeah, because Mike's already introduced himself. Mike, Mike, Mike already did one with Matt and Kyle, I think, right? Yep. Would you guys talk? I can't remember what you talked about. It was science. <laughs> it's like you get pigeonholed. I'm trying to remember what research. we even talked about. I think I just gave Kyle crap for having cabbage belly in Costa Rica most of the time and the car breaking down because he was driving. But I don't remember what we actually talked about. <laughs> so he was actually driving? I didn't actually know that part of it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, when we went back down there. It was myself and him and Rua, and we got this car from, you know, whoever the rental car Costa Rica person is, the normally fine person. And we, we had a hard time getting out of the parking lot because there was a nick in the little magnetic thing to exit the parking lot. And Kyle's Spanish is worse than mine, and my Spanish is really bad. So it took us a while to get that figured out, got out of the parking lot, started driving down the road, probably only got maybe eight miles away, far enough out of, you know, the city to not be near a gas station. And then all of a sudden black smoke came out of the engine and it looked like the, the gas gauge was on E at the same time. And we got out and looked and there's this uh, pool of oil under the car with this, I don't know, black material piece of some sort that <laughs> had come off the car. So it was uh, alongside the road for about two hours before we were able to get a different vehicle and actually got a ride to Dr. Ben House's place. So it was oh. interesting. Like imagine the days when there wasn't cell phones too. Oh, I know. We'd be so screwed. <laughs> like we're on a major freeway. Like no one was going to pick us up at some point. It, it got to be so bad where I'm just like, uh, I'm going to stand like 20 feet over here away from the car because if somebody hits the car, I'm standing next to it. I'm as good yeah. as done then too. 
I think Rua sat on an anthill for a while, and yeah, it was all sorts of fun. It's just hot. It was. It was, so it was warm, luckily, but it wasn't stupid warm that it day. Wasn't. We got pretty oh, lucky. Right. Yeah, because it was later in the evening, because all the flights get in, you know, like later mid afternoon. So, yeah, we got pretty lucky with that, or we could have been just baked lobsters out there. That's Kyle's fault, essentially. Yeah, it's always Kyle's fault. <laughs> so we actually we have a group chat where like Kyle we can see this kyle gets angry at a lot of things and like it's all kyle's fault <laughs> like, it's like maybe if you didn't post about all this stuff over the years like you wouldn't be angry and now you're angry with everyone you should have just stayed off social media and you won't be it's no. all your fault i'm just gonna send him a text now that just says it's all your fault <laughs> yeah yeah, I, I, well, God, I mean, there's always something in Costa Rica, right? Like, I know I came one time I came back and had to take, like, I think I took a total of like four cars from Ben's to the airport just to get to, and that was like post COVID, which that was an exciting, it was like right when COVID hit. The last time you were in Costa Rica, Mike, <laughs> you got stuck there for what, two, 10 days or whatever, because they, because you maybe had COVID. Yeah, I was probably down not. there with the special forces experience and, uh, we were doing some stuff with them, actually I ended up doing ayahuasca and combo and then we're coming back and yeah, took the little rapid test and it said positive. And I was like, oh, okay, well, whatever. I, I didn't have symptoms really. I, I felt a little tired, but not bad. So I'm like, whatever, I'll go back. I'll just get another test. I'll show them the data that you could have like a 40% false positive. Long story short, I sent Jody on a plane and said, just go home. Like your test was good because you could be stuck here. And I thought I'll be stuck overnight. I'll have to get a PCR test or whatever. I'll, I'll get it cleared up. But long story short, Costa Rica doesn't take more than one test when you're actually at the airport. So I got detained in the back of the Ebola tent for a couple hours and, and they had to pick a hotel you, to yeah. stay at well, for and they nine days. They yeah, they didn't use your science reasoning. So like you're a very logical person and you yeah. have the data. They're like, yeah, like you're in Costa Rica now. <laughs> I'm yeah, the I captain. <laughs> I couldn't get to my laptop. So I, I texted uh, Dr. Tommy Wood and he sent me a couple of the studies and I tried to show them on my phone, but they weren't having. <laughs> yeah, they're like, well, okay. Tommy, they wouldn't let Tommy out of the hospital after the snake bite because his creatinine was high. And he's like, no, no, it's because I lift weights. And they're like, no. Yeah. <laughs> no. You're staying uh, like it, it, we're trying to sell Ben's Ben's retreats with right. Costa Rica. <laughs> it's, it's, it, like it's a, it's a lot of work to go learn about shit. <laughs> And go lift in the jungle, but he has air conditioning now, so it's well, it's well worth it. It's just yeah, you, know, you probably won't the... slip and slide on the floor in the gym because people and used to laugh like at me prime. wearing shoes yeah. all the time. I'm like, have you seen how wet this floor is after about 20 minutes? <laughs> well, because you know, like COVID had first started, like, and both Dean and I were in it considerably heavier than we are now. Yeah, and we like just like we're like working out with our shirts off, and I just remember Ben like looking at that bench when we were in there and being like, because we didn't really know what COVID was. We were just still making jokes. And he's like, he's like, dude, that just has like COVID all over it. Just because like, <laughs> we were just like dripping sweat and just like, it's just like, you couldn't even towel it off. It was, oh, it was awful. Yeah, it's, 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 it's like, you don't have to warm up though. Like there's one benefit to it is like when you're warm, you don't have to warm up. Um, well, the weirdest thing to me was we were doing those high rep leg presses and you would like hit this like, just absolute failure point like it would just come out of nowhere and like yeah. you couldn't budget but you would be like completely recovered in like 30 seconds it was, it was wild it was like that heat i might probably know it was like that heat it's kind of like when you do mass or um the cajun it's like Ugh. 
was he a horrible is experience. the he, like, and I, and I have actually like because when we were practicing for the the competition with Pat Davidson at Ben's thing, um, I was messing around with ice packs. I think I actually referred to some of your research or like asked you because it was like, oh, you can keep your core temperature down because that was the biggest rate limiter at that point was like how can you squeeze out a couple extra percent it was like stay cooler and i used ice packs it 100 percent helped because once you hit that like heat i don't know like once you get past that threshold like you're fucking done like you're puking you're puking nothing <laughs> you're just like dry heaving yeah, it was wild yeah, yeah. is, is yeah. that a thing it's probably a thing yeah i mean there's i mean obviously thermal stress right if you look yeah. at athletes who compete in you know warmer climates it's, yeah. it's energy for your body to cool itself you're limited by your rate of cooling etc that's why humidity is so bad because your sweat doesn't evaporate as much yeah i mean there's some even some stuff out of stanford where they have this thing called the glove they've had research on it back and forth for like 15 years and it, there's a company now i can't remember their name that's producing it but it's not out yet but you stick your hand under a vacuum on the top of this cold like dome because your hands and your feet have so much uh, exchange yeah. of temperature a lot of times, right? So if, how do you regulate temperature? If you're really hot when you're trying to sleep, you like stick your foot out, you stick your hands out, yeah. all this kind of stuff. And so they've shown some preliminary data that the amount of reps you can do before failure is like substantially higher just by cooling your body uh, between sets. Yeah. Again, yeah. it's almost like it seems like science fiction. They've had like a couple articles that have popped up in Wired magazine over the years. So I've been trying to follow it. It's supposedly legitimate, but I would like to see more more data on it. But well, the theory makes sense. It was about like eight percent because I we like we like tested it because I was like fuck this I'm gonna beat Pat and then I almost dropped the weights on my toe. And that was just kind of like kind of after the traumatic experience at Costa Rica when Mike other mike or lexner did drop it on his toe and and they they canceled me the band was like you're done you're not you're not going because it kind of bounced all over the place anyways long story short is we i was using it to test if i could do more because it was the heat was the limiter we didn't have air conditioning in in anthony's basement where we were practicing and it was about eight percent like it was crazy and i did it under the armpits um like on my chest and my back and i would just lay there between sets and like it was crazy because Cajun's a, a volume thing. Like you win if you get more volume. And so it was really easy to do the calculations and it was crazy. Like I could, I basically just added more to get hotter and push the limit, but it was like, I couldn't believe how well it worked, but it was because heat was a factor and we were going mm-hmm. to Texas anyways, but yeah, like, I don't know. So use ice. Packs. Yeah. I mean, I've done crazy stuff where I have a cold water immersion converted freezer in my garage. So I've done rounds on the, the rower and then gotten in the cold water immersion just to cool off and then go back on the rower again. Yeah. And That's I mean, cool. it's anecdotal, but I did notice a pretty significant difference in terms of repeated power output, but I don't do it a lot now because it's just a wet mess pain in the ass. It, it sounds like yeah. overclocking. Like it, like if, if anyone is into computers, yeah. like it's not good. <laughs> like overclocking it reduces the <laughs> lifespan of the of the the processor or the video card or whatever but like if you use liquid cooling and stuff you can basically push things to the max for longer it'll just won't last as long <laughs> so i don't know if it's a good or bad yeah possibly i mean it depends on you know what adaptation you're trying to get if you're trying to get performance i think yeah reducing thermal load between it's probably helpful yeah. um the one thing that can screw you up though is if people put it on their neck or in some of the vasculature in the Ooh. neck area that will potentially cool some of the blood going to the brain but then your brain thinks you're cooler than where you're at but your core temperature hasn't changed um, and that can kind of bite you in the ass because you do 
feel better. It's weird. Like you feel better, but then when I looked at repeat performance, it wasn't nearly as good. And then all of a sudden it felt like I just ran into a monster wall. So that method, not so good. <laughs> Which is because like, I use cold water face and neck with clients on for like interruption of binge like behaviors. So sure. if someone's like, you know, kind of in a, a moment where they're, they're stuck, it's like cold water or cold, cold ice pack on the neck. And, um, you know, the theory is that it, it, it creates like a dive response and changes your, changes your, your kind of mental state and helps you break out of whatever your, your focus is at the time. Yeah, you can play around with it. So, I mean, Cal Dietz has his, you can look up mammalian dive reflex video, which I've done with a few clients. If you want cold packs and you don't have access to cold water, I've done it where if you look at the research, if you want to try to get more parasympathetic more immediately from cold, uh, you would hold your breath and just stick your head in water yeah. because most of that appears to be triggered by, you know, cold on the, you know, the trigeminal nerve and maybe some of the pressure or that type of thing. And then you have less of the, basically the stress response with it, right? Yeah. So you can try to push it to be more parasympathetic. And if you wanted to be more sympathetic, you would get the water temp super cold and you would get as much skin exposure as you can, but you wouldn't stay in real long, right? Because that shock of when you hit the water, that cold on your skin, you get a massive sympathetic upregulation from that but you're then kind of getting out relatively soon. So you try to minimize the overall stress response too. So you can play around with fun stuff like that. If you're a bigger the, pussy the with issue, water, it'll yeah, make you more we sympathetic. Had, <laughs> yeah, well, the issue we had with the water, because that's the initial uh, intervention is, is cold water, uh, is working with a lot of women who work in a professional environment. Yeah. Wearing makeup, like stuffing your face yep. into a bowl of water. <laughs> Yeah, it, did, it, it was not it was not the best reaction when I recommended that. They're like, you know what I'm going to look like at work? Like, <laughs> I don't care. This is for your health. Good point. For Good your point. health. Suck it up. Well, I actually like the biggest thing on the dive response was like uh, the David. <laughs> yeah, I know you hate Joe Rogan. I don't know. It wasn't even Joe Rogan, but David Blaine was on it. And he was just basically like, tell me this isn't tell me this is bullshit. He's like, wow. And he like basically just went to a deep dive. No pun intended on, on that. And like you could do some crazy shit. Like he was holding his, like he got, he has like the world record. It's not like it's a legit world record, but like, it's fucking crazy. (laughs) They're like as parasympathetic as you can get. That's what's wild. Magic. A lot of magic, quote unquote, magic tricks are just like crazy endurance. Like, yeah, that's all David Blaine stuff is. And Harry, a lot of Houdini stuff. Yeah. Oh yeah. It's the, what's them on Joe Rogan was fascinating. I was Mm -hmm. just like, wow. And he was a hot air balloon too, right? Like the pressure stuff. Cause he went hot air balloon free diving or free diving, whatever the, the, I don't know. He jumped from the highest fucking place ever, but it's the same thing. It's on the other spectrum of that was like, can he Mm -hmm. pressurize enough and live nuts? Yeah. And I think when he did the breath hold, he did it assisted, right? So he did it with oxygen, but still, I mean, he was what 15 or 16 minutes. Right. Which I think at the time was an unofficial world record. There's people who have gone past it now. Um, but he purposely, I think if I remember right, lost weight, did all sorts of crazy relaxation, you know, techniques. And you, you can get longer times when you're under water and exposed to the pressure in the water everywhere because of the mammalian dive reflux. But if you're doing an oxygen assisted and you're doing it completely underwater, your risk of a shallow water blackout goes up like exponentially too. 
So yeah. it's yeah. He was saying that that was the, <laughs> but that was the craziest thing. I think he was talking about the blackouts because like he's like it's inevitable. You're gonna get it, and like he's like I've been through whatever ten of them, and he's like it's not good for you to <laughs> the blackouts. So you want to like reduce the amount, but like it's kind of that's how you get better because you can figure out the limits so to speak, but it was just nutty. I was like, this is well, it's, like a it's stupid fucking training. idea. That's one of the things that my brother said they do is they send them, you put them underwater. Sleep blackout. The point isn't to see how long you last. It's you have to black out. Yeah. Because, yeah. They, because you don't realize, and you got, you know, from jujitsu, like, have yeah. you, you, are you still haven't gotten choked out yet, have you? No, because I fucking, t- I, yeah. I know where that point is. Like, <laughs> you, don't, you don't, no, you don't. That's true. That's well, I don't have, you. I know it's coming, so I just, It's yeah. coming. Yeah. But one, one day you'll go out and you'll be like, dude, I was fine. Like, I didn't even know it was coming. And you think about that without having someone actually actively choking yeah. you, you're just swimming. So it's like, all of a sudden you're like, I feel good. And then it's like, yeah, off to I sleep. did that to someone. And he was like, he was like, yeah, like it wasn't even tight. And I'm like, what the fuck is he talking about? Like you were out, dude. Like, I didn't even know you were out. You were out. Cause it, and like, he was like, came up, he's like, what happened? Like, did I fuck, did I win? I'm like, no, you didn't win. <laughs> and it was traumatizing for me because he looked dead. His face was purple and his eyes were rolled back. And I'm like, I don't want to get choked out. Like, this sucks. I don't know. And you listen to some podcasts and stuff with like Lerd Hamilton with some of the training he does at his place with the weights under the pool. And yeah, he's like, like, yeah. Yeah, every once in a while, we got people that just go floppy and we just grab them, bring them back up to the surface. It's like mentioning like it's no big deal. And granted, if I'm ever going to have a shallow water blackout, that's probably the perfect scenario to be in where someone's experienced and knows what they're doing is watching you the entire time. But I was like, yeah, especially for you, because you you probably want someone about Laird Hamilton's size if it's you. (laughs) If it's me, you're fucked. Like, I'm not getting you out of the water. <laughs> my five eight ass and get you well, <laughs> to, to move it like you you use some of this not i don't think you do like shallow water blackouts but like part no. of like your thing is like pushing whatever it'd be physiologically flexibility on yeah. certain aspects and cold being one of them heat being another and like are you finding like because it ends up looking like it's in the biohacker sphere but it, it ends up having like legitimate outcomes that are kind of based in science like like, how have you been using it, I guess, without making people black? <laughs> yeah, so the the biggest danger or how you can, I wouldn't say 100% avoid, but almost close to 100% avoid a shallow water blackout is by not offloading the CO2 in some form beforehand, right? Yeah. So if I'm used, so the reason that you use an oxygen assist beforehand, so people who breathe literally pure oxygen, is not hyper oxygenation of your body because you can't do that unless you pressurize it like a, a hyperbaric chamber HBOT. but they're doing it because your body will then offload a lot of carbon dioxide and the mechanism to breathe in vast majority of people the primary mechanism is escalating levels of carbon dioxide and if you do things like a wim hof like a super ventilation where you're breathing in and out very fast and then you get into uh, deeper water or even just shallow water with your face down, you kind of go from, I feel good, I feel good, I feel good, boop, oh, oh, I, I went to sleep, right? Because those levels rise so fast and you don't have that sort of buffer zone. There, there's also some stuff in physiology where they think a small percentage of people may actually be primarily regulated by oxygen, and that's not real studied. 
And so for people who did a lot of free diving, one of the theories was that these people were even more subject to uh, shallow water blackouts because they're only regulating off of oxygen. So normally oxygen is the backup regulatory system to CO2. So as long as you're not hyperventilating beforehand using pure oxygen, mm -hmm. it, there's still a risk there that you want to manage, but it becomes really, really low at that point. I've seen some crazy people like this is where like people take this shit way too far. Like they'll be like, oh, I looked at Wim Hof. It's like super good. And there's like Instagram video. I don't know why I look at this shit, but it was, <laughs> but they would like hyperventilate and then do a cold shower. <laughs> pass out in the shower oh yeah <laughs> and like really falling at their head and they'd be like ha 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 like this is like cool and it, like you like could die like with your face down in a shallow puddle in your, <laughs> your shower like yeah like, why do I like mean, how do people take it to this level fuck sakes i mean even when i have people do it here for like just some weekend stuff like we have mats like literally in the grass and you lay down because you're not exposed to water but if yeah. you you know push it really hard and you pass out you're okay right you're in air you're not going to inhale a bunch of water you're already lying down you're on a soft surface you know but you see some people do it standing up over concrete or trying to do it while they're walking or running and they've never done it before they have zero experience that's just such a horrible idea <laughs> like i i someone's died hundred percent. Like I, I know, like oh, I'm, sure. I, I'm not going to see it, but like some, like he, Wim Hof's a very good character and he's like, he's inspirational, I guess you could say. Oh yeah. But he gets people to do this shit. Like you said, and they're not prepared. Like I didn't even know that. Like, but I knew people passed out, but I, that makes sense. Cause they expel it fast enough and like it works. But then like someone tries to do a face plant in, in their sink to, cause Jeb told them to, to stop their eating behaviors, but they did Wim Hof with that. <laughs> and then now they're dead. Like, like that could actually happen. <laughs> I, I want yeah. to know if it happened now. Yeah. And the other part that they forget to tell people too, is like, if you go super hard into the, you know, sort of shamanic breathing or mm. many, many rounds of a super ventilation type thing, it's, it's a weird experience, right? So Stenless Groff used that method, um, different types of breathing techniques um, in his uh, psychology practice after LSD was made illegal yeah. in the to get there, 60s, right? early 70s, um, because he was looking for something, quote unquote, natural that could have sort of, you know, sometimes mystical experiences. And, you know, that can definitely bring up some trauma and other things that you may not be prepared for. So, yeah, some caveats to watch out for. <laughs> Yeah, or if you want to find, I think that was one of the books, like the dying before dying, but like some of the indigenous tribes would do, like they could do it without drugs, essentially, it would be like the, the, the stratosphere of like the best way to do it. But like, basically, they're just almost dying, or passing out, essentially, like, yeah, there's some of the stuff with the sweat lodges and breathing techniques, and you're under a high amount of stress. And there's, yeah, yeah there's all sorts of different techniques, and it, it does feel weird. <laughs> It's like, whoa. <laughs> yeah. Does it help you get bigger? I guess would be the audience's question. <laughs> uh, I think at some point it actually becomes detrimental is my guess. And that's just, again, hypothetical that at some point, do you want to have better management of oxygen and CO2? 100%, yeah. right? Do I even think CO2 tolerance is a thing? I think so. But if you ask like, hardcore you know respiratory researchers like dempsey out of wisconsin he's like i don't even know what you're talking about yeah right so I, I think it's a thing at some point because you've all done this like you've done 
some hard aerobic training or a test that you weren't necessarily prepared for. And there's this weird line where physically you can feel like you can go a little bit more mentally. It's so hard because you're, you're just not used to sucking for that many minutes. So I think there is this sort of mental plasticity to all of it also that's hard to, to tease out. And what I've seen in people who do a lot of Wim Hof stuff, I just wonder if you're offloading too much carbon dioxide. And then when you go to do something that's really, really sucky, they just seem to have a harder time. With yeah. It. Cause they're, they're I don't really know what easy. the mechanism there is. That actually makes sense. Like it's almost counter like, cause they sell it like that, but you're getting used to the easy street. And then when it gets hard, it, right. Yeah. Okay. Cause yeah. Th- there was a thing like getting bigger. I mean, anecdotally, we can just look at every Wim Hof seminar and say, <laughs> Well, I actually like forgot, like there was like a big debate on Instagram. Mike's not privy to Instagram. I, we always usually in our meetings, we'll catch him up on Instagram. Yes, uh, that is useful. <laughs> but there was actually one like recently on the nasal, like, so like nasal breathing has made a resurgence. I know you know mm. that because like, you, you talk about it a lot. So this actually might be a good question. I know Jeb will like, like want to talk about it too, but there was essentially a, a big power lifter on Instagram was like saying nasal breathing is the way to like get your, I think it was basically to get stronger. Like if you ain't fucking doing it, power lifters, you should do it. And then all the hmm. evidence-based people were like, nasal breathing is fucking stupid, you dumb fucks. And then the, the power lifters are like, you're dumb because you're small. They shut the fuck up. And then that's kind of what happened. But like, is there like, that's, awesome. that, 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 that's basically what happened, right? And then, yeah. and then it, Mike knows how that goes. The stronger person usually wins. And then the evidence-based people get mad. And but they don't want to get big. So it's like, it's stupid, but is there like, how are you using it? Cause I know you have the body of research on like basically all of it. So like, is there merit in some of this shit or are the evidence people just not really that into it? Yeah. So the first time I heard about it was uh, through Cal Dietz and then through Patrick McEwen's book, his first one. Um, God, is this seven years ago now? Whenever his book first came out and I read it and I was like, oh, that's pretty cool. And overall, I think it's a good read. I mean, I would recommend his stuff. I really like most of his stuff. Um, But what I've realized with following the people who were kind of following him, like they, and this happens with everyone. It's not just his stuff. It's like, they're all like, nasal breathing is like the best thing ever. And so I'm like, okay, well, let me try this. Let's, let's see what, what happens. And I found that it was useful only up to a point, right? So fast forward after nasal breathing becomes more popular, uh, even some people I've tested or seen their metabolic scores for testing that you just look at their mechanics. I'll look at the raw spreadsheet of, so if you have metabolic heart, you've got the little face mask on, you're looking at all air that's exchanged in and out. You're looking at oxygen, carbon dioxide. And what you're looking at is kind of from this test, can we kind of have an idea of what is their limiter of exercise? And in a fair amount of people, I'd write email them back and I'm like, Hey, when you did this test, were you only nasal breathing? And like a vast majority of them were like, yeah, I'm like, you understand that this is a max test, right? Because I can tell by looking at your values that you are purely limited by airflow, yeah. right? And if you breathe only in and out of your nose, right, you can get a lot less air than if you, you know, open your mouth. You're like, no, but I heard nasal breathing is like the best thing ever. I'm like, but again, it's the thing about context that no one wants to talk about. So in that case, at some point when you're doing all out like maximal exercise, you don't want to be limited by air exchange, right? And you might at some point be limited by that via respiratory mechanics or whatever. 
but if you have a reason to solve it by like opening your mouth, you would probably want to <laughs> open your mouth and get more air in. However, I do find for lower intensity stuff, there's no real, real need to breathe in and out of your mouth, right? You're not going to be limited by airflow. It's you're, you're doing it for a completely different purpose. It's by definition, sub max. Yeah. And so then I had some people do sub max stuff because I initially got into it when I was training more CrossFit people, I couldn't get them to do anything that was like moderate intensity. I tried putting heart rate monitors on them. I tried everything. And like week two, the heart rate monitor would get lost and they don't, Oh, I lost it. I don't know my Metcon stuff. And so I said, okay, you're, you're going to go do a 5k on the rower and you're only going to breathe in and out of your nose. And the first few people that did it, they're like, Oh, one guy in particular is so funny. His max heart rate was only 115. And he's like, it felt like I was drowning in air. Right. And you realize that a lot of people at lower intensities are just mechanically so inefficient. Mm-hmm. But six weeks later, you know, he could do 100% nasal breathing, you know, hit a heart rate of like 150 and, and hold that pace. So I find for lower submax stuff like day to day sleep, yeah, you probably should be breathing out of your nose. However, as you're scaling up intensity of exercise, at some point, you don't want to be limited by your own um, limitation of just not getting enough airflow. So at some point during all out max exercise, you're going to be breathing in and out of your, your mouth. And like Brian McKenzie has this gear system, which I like. So it's nasal in, nasal out, nasal in, nasal out at a faster pace, nasal in, mouth out. And then at some point during high exertion, it's mouth in and mouth out. So again, the answer is all the above. It's just, what are you trying to do? Can you raise the max capacity? Like, so if your airflow through your nose goes higher at the top end, does it kind of give you a bump or does it? has it not really shown that because like the, yeah. the, you work on it so that you could like if, if the crossfit person they're like well yeah but how do i get more conditioned like would that help so what i've noticed is that it appears to transfer quite well yeah. uh meaning because if you if you go back let's use crossfit as a great example if you can train your brain to think what you're doing is more sub max but you can hold that output that's a benefit and efficiency and so there is some pretty good studies showing that if you do breathe in and out of your nose, it is more on the parasympathetic side of the nervous system. Once you start breathing in and out of your mouth, that's more sympathetic. Once you start lighting up your neck extensors, all those muscles in your neck to really rake up on your rib cage, that has a, a two-way street into being more sympathetic. So what I found was they could hold a certain pace, nasal breathe, and that was transferred to even higher intensity exercise. Mm-hmm. Because what they would do previous was it would get hard and you'd see them just start breathing in out of their mouth immediately. They had no other gear to go through to get to that point. And it's, it's also a cool way of kind of regulating your own nervous system too, right? So you can step up like a gear system and you can step back down. You don't really need a heart rate monitor and you can just keep an eye on it doing that. Well, I think that's, it's cool too, because, you know, my mind keeps coming back to fighting yeah. Um, yeah, because it's a necessity in fighting. You have to breathe out of your nose until you get your nose broken, of course. But you right. know, the worst thing that can happen is try to breathe through your mouth because you're gonna get knocked out. You're gonna get your jaw broken. Like bad, bad stuff happens. Um, and, but also not even thinking about how that is a regulatory mechanism in like sympathetic versus parasympathetic because uh, you do find yourself way more calm in those situations when you are nasal breathing. And yep. for fighters, I would, I would. You argue know, they're done. Like, like I know people are done when they're. Like, <laughs> oh yeah like, like they don't even need to like they could be better than me or like whatever i just know they're gonna gas right away 
Like it, every it, when I do that, I'm like, fuck, I'm fucked. <laughs> Although I will use there's a couple tricks that, 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 that some people have taught me where it's like you do it, <laughs> especially when you're about to get choked, just to have like a big influx of oxygen so you can hold out longer. So you, if it's an air choke, um, have a little sure. bit more oxygen in there. But uh, yeah, and so kind of within that question. Is there a way then, so like, let's say that, like you said, you saw someone who would be like, he said he was drowning in air at 115 beats per minute, but then he got to 150 and he was fine. Um, are You're seeing, do you see that people are able to like, they're able to kind of stay in that higher heart rate zone and continue to nasal breathe? Um, do they see an increase kind of in, in overall cardio capability or is it just like within that nasal? Because again, if, if you could get to that point where you can live in that higher range with nasal breathing. I just, I see the benefits being pretty high for, for certain sports, obviously. Yeah. So I think if you just look at all out performance, I think it's an efficiency, right? So okay. if, if I have an athlete who caps out nasal breathing at 120, another athlete who caps out at say 155, I'm going to pick the athlete at 155, like all day. Cause I yeah. know they're more efficient up to a higher, we'll oh, say exertion. Okay. Right. Okay. Um, because the caveat with all of this is you have to look at what is the output, yeah. the amount of like, you know, moxie testing, breathing tests, all sorts of weird shit I get from people. I'm like, Oh, that's cool, man. Like, like what was the output? Like if you were on a rower or an airdyne, like what, what was the physical output of this athlete? And sometimes they're like, Oh, I don't know. I didn't look I'm like you didn't look. Like that's the thing that matters above all else. Right. Right. So the output matters. Number one within that, if you can yeah. hold an output and be more efficient, right. That's, that's a benefit. And breathing is just one way to look at efficiency. And there is some interesting, I think, self-regulation with that where I've noticed on a rower and people can do this themselves, like get up to right about where your max is and hold whatever pace that's at and then breathe in and out of your nose. And so if you can hold that, but it, it's hard, but you can do it for two, three minutes in a row, then start breathing out of your mouth and watch your heart rate. Yeah. What I've noticed in most people is their heart rate will uptick five, six, seven beats per minute, but they're holding the same pace. Yeah. Um, so I think that's interesting. What, what also is interesting too, is that it feels a little bit easier but then you tend to kind of crash on the other side. Mm -hmm. So if someone's doing a max 2K test, what I'll tell them is, okay, try to nasal breathe as, as much as you can, like for, to you can, can hold that pace and then breathe in through your nose, out through your mouth. And then, yeah, when you need to hit that last part of the, the test, then by all means go mouth in, mouth out. And I've noticed also that I think it might be a mental strategy where it gives you something to focus on too. Cause I'll do that myself. I'm like, okay, man, if I can just nasal breathe in and out, this sucks really bad. But in my head, I'm setting a limit of, I've got, you know, four more minutes to go on the test. If I can just do this for two more minutes, I know I'm going to be better. And then when I switch, it feels like, oh, this is easier now. Like you, and it's it might just like be I think purely it's like switching tasks. But I think it could be that sympathetic response to not, I don't right. know the correlation to that, but it's like, it's like, it's almost like shifts more to sympathetic, which again is going to have a performance output, but like in terms of holding it, probably you're going to gas out quicker but then at the same time when performance is the only thing that matters for a given like i guess it contextually matter what time if it's a an hour-long race it kind of doesn't really matter but if it's like a two-minute sprint like you and you can hold mouth breathing you probably want to just <laughs> go hard 
Yeah. And a lot of it, I look at, you know, look at the best in the world at whatever activity yeah. it is what and almost all of the best in the world, make it look easy, right? Yeah. You can pull up like, you know, Cameron doing a, a max 2k on a rower, like world record performance. And he literally will start at the same pace and end at almost the same pace. And yeah, he's, he's freaking tired when he's done, but he doesn't look that bad, right? You look at Usain Bolt running, you know, hundred meter, 200 meter, doesn't look that bad, right? You watch like my buddy, Dr. Andy Gelpin helps train, you know, elite MMA fighters. So they do a ton of nasal breathing as soon as they can, because they also know that that helps cognition, right? If you can stay more parasympathetic in a stressful situation, you just have better decision-making. Yep. So if you watch a lot of USC fights, not so much anymore, most people are pretty good at it. But if you go back, you know, eight years, you could watch the person just start mouth breathing and you yeah. could just... Yeah. The amount of poor decisions they made and they just completely fall apart and they just get well, you, you even see it like I, I know Jeb hates Connor McGregor, but like they were like saying, like, I think that's <laughs> one of the biggest quotes, like, oh man, he looks loose. And he's like when he was doing yeah. Aldo, but he was just and like Aldo was just fucking like clinched. And it's again, Aldo probably could have thrown a haymaker, but he just worse decision making. Like you see, like it's almost like all the loose people just fucking crush. Yeah, like Silva, like the, the whatever style bender, like there's there's a bunch of good examples. I'm sure there's examples of them getting fucked up too. Like I've seen that, but I don't know. Jeb, Jeb would know more. No, I mean, I, again, like Mike said, though nowadays everyone's so good. It's like yeah, I, I don't notice that much of a difference now. I think I because it's a thing. Back in the day, you did. Yeah, because yeah, people learn, right? They like this works, so everyone's gonna do it. What it was like, I think Rich Ronin for CrossFit. He there's was more very efficient arts. at breathing. Who's that, Froning? Yeah, Froning when he did CrossFit, right? Yeah. Now, most of the top competitors are pretty damn good, right? Yeah, but in his day, he was yeah. doing that before anyone else was. Yeah. He, he, was, he was a pioneer, so to speak. Yeah. yeah well, I, and I think CrossFit's probably the perfect example because yeah. it, it covers so many domains, right? Like, you have to do so many things well yep. that you have to have endurance. You have to have muscular endurance. You have to have strength. You've got to have Skill. Uh, comp yeah. composition. And you have to be able to do, like you said, like a 2K, but also a 20K. Like, yeah. Marathon you know, row. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they, right, are... they, they did a marathon row one year, didn't they? Wasn't yeah, they, like, they did. Yeah. Like, it was yeah. crazy. And this is where, like, the application, like, this is where the powerlifting thing was kind of weird. Like, what, what do you see the application there? Because, like, what I saw, like, what I think is a lot of times it gets them to chill the fuck out and do their cardio or just walk. Cause like literally they're talking about breathing through the nose, but they're doing it during basically zone two and zone one conditioning, which they don't do. So you basically just made it kind of cool. Cause you, you, you kind of tickled their brain a little bit like, Oh yeah, I should do that for performance. But really. They just got their conditioning up. <laughs> like I think that's yeah. more of the outcome, but like whatever works, I guess. Yeah. And I think, for lifting, I'll probably write this all up as a product at some point, but I've been playing around with this for three, four years of what are things that you can voluntarily do to train parasympathetic to sympathetic, yeah. right? So if you look at like all the top athletes, they can go highly sympathetic, highly parasympathetic and go back and forth, yeah. right? So <clears throat> a good buddy of mine who trains a lot of uh, NHL pros, he was saying like the guys who come into the league who are just sympathetic all the time, like they do great for you said like two to three years and after that like they get injured they burn out something happens to them and they disappear he's like the guys who stay for like over a decade are the ones who can go very sympathetic very parasympathetic and they can oscillate 
back and forth. Um, and if you look at lifters who have been lifting really well for long periods of time with few injuries, they kind of naturally do that, right? You'll see them, you know, to some level get amped up before a lift that obviously looks very different for different lifters, but then you'll see them be pretty relaxed. Like you'll see them walk around, maybe talk to people They're They can go on and they can go off at the same time. And so you can mediate that via different mechanisms. So one of them is breathing. If I breathe more through my mouth at a faster rate, that's going to be more sympathetic. If I breathe slower in and out of my nose, that's more parasympathetic. If I bias the exhale more than the inhale, longer exhale, it's going to make you more parasympathetic. And then you can get into uh, visual responses. If I look at something really close with a high amount of focus, that's more on the sympathetic side. I'm walking around, I'm looking far away. So walking, you have something called optic flow, right? The environment's moving past you. You have a much wider gaze. You're looking far away. That's much more on the parasympathetic side. So what I do with some people and myself is you can now pair these together, right? So before a lift, like you may want to take a couple, you know, faster inhale exhales, maybe through your nose, out through your mouth, something like that. Right before you go, you probably want to look closer, not far. And then once you're done with that lift, then get your breathing rate back down to normal, switch more to inhale, exhale through your nose, uh, have more of a wider gaze, maybe walk around, like be relaxed, and then start to ramp up a little bit for your next lift. Because you, you can't stay on that entire time either, right? You're just not going to be able to do the amount of work you need to. So you need to be on when it counts and then off when you're trying to recover. I think back to uh, when I was doing DC training and like, that's like, and I still do some of those sets like that, where it's like, you know, you're going to failure and like, I'll take hack squats. Cause that's, sure. that's always my, my most like amped up. I'll ever get for a lift. And it's like, you're going to go to failure. You're going to rest like 30 seconds, go to failure, rest 30 seconds. But it is, it's like, you know, you're like, I get in, I get, I think about that tunnel focus right before that first rep, bark a couple times, hit it and like smash it. And then I'm done. And then it's, I stop and yeah like out of almost necessity that, like big breaths yeah and, like that, that's what i do like that's why you like the mat like the cajun was a good one because it's like yeah your only goal is max poundage and like i would do the exact same thing too is like between sets but more so between um cycles of it you would have like whatever two minute break right. or three minute break and right. like i was doing everything sitting in front of the fan ice packs yeah breathing as slowly <laughs> as possible watching my heart rate monitor I'm like can i fucking get this thing down and like it worked like because if i stayed in it like I was, bur- no, I was just done. burning out. And but like, and it's, I think athletes, like people who've, who've competed, you know, not even at that high level, but have competed seriously. Yeah. It's like, yeah. It, it's part, or, you know, you're not even just athletes. I think people who maybe like musicians, right. Like who have to go sure. on really serious auditions or yeah. have big shows, being able to like that's what get up to. and come down beta blockers. Absolutely. Like that's, that, you know, that's, that's a perfect point. Um, but I think that, that, so you could do it now that now that people are teaching it and you do like you talk back to fighting, you will look at them at the corner. They're like rubbing the chest, like breathe, breathe. You got to come down. You got to get that heart rate down because you're going to have to go back in and do five more minutes. <laughs> so like you better get it down as low as possible. But yeah, it's it's cool because I think this stuff falls in like the physiological and like so much on the psychological level, too, that it's all. But again, it's it, all the longevity piece was the biggest piece that I've seen, like in, in even just more recently, like I think I was talking to Jeb. Um, and a few people will just like, I up my jujitsu schedule because I wanted to get better. But 
like that's a recipe for disaster if I did it the way I normally would do it, which would be to be a psychopath. And so I've actually learned to not try as hard and I've actually done better probably because I'm making better decisions, but I'm not getting hurt as much more so because I'm not putting the all it's like I'm, I'm using it for when it matters which is like in, in certain decisions, which is something like I need, like my rate limiter would be, I go too hard all the time, which again, in powerlifting, I think is a good example, or even some bodybuilders who get hurt because there's, we talk about injuries and lifting and they're not that high, but we, we know a lot of the higher competitors are people who, who get really strong, get fucking hurt all the time. And maybe staying out of the crazy town um, <laughs> is helpful. You know what I mean? Like, and I think that that's probably the highest leverage piece not the highest leverage piece but the highest leverage point of the breathing piece would be they can just chill the fuck out yeah and i think all of it's on a i think of it all as a, a dial yeah. right so yeah. even with training clients some who are more advanced than myself i think about everything in terms of a priority right so the thing that's my high volume probably most taxing to get through a session i move to monday right so i do some upper body back stuff go to the gym maybe like an hour and 45 minutes, but I know that's my more priority day. The second priority day is on Saturday. So Saturday I have Friday off and then Sunday off before and after, uh, which is more squats and some grip stuff. Uh, but then within each session, they've got their A, B and C lifts. So the A is more performance-based, you know, trying to make sure you stay in the moment, upregulate, downregulate as high as you can. And then when you're doing accessory work, like cable press downs, who cares? Like just get it done, right? It doesn't matter as much as a heavy deadlift or squat or something like that. So you can gradiate the session then too. And then you can gradiate week to week, right? So you may ramp up in volume and have a pretty intense week. And then you've got an easy one on, on the back end. You may do that per season, right? So now if I'm home, not traveling as much, I know I can, you know, train at a higher volume. So I'll leave Monday... Wednesday and Saturday open-ended. So I'll just go as long as I feel like I'm still doing high quality work, I'll just keep going. All right. So at Wednesday, I moved to Tuesday yesterday, then it'd be like an hour and 40 minutes, you know, and I left just because I, I wasn't able to do any more high quality work and I would have been missing lifts and going backwards. All right. So I think all of these, you can then gradiate, but most people are just thinking about either you know, standard people you see in the global gym who, who can't get ready for a lift if their life depended upon it. Mm -hmm. And then you've got the people who are just amped up like all ready. the time <laughs> who are, you know, doing an RPE of a 10. And if you hit a true 10 on an RPE, right? So if I get on the rower and I do a 2K at a legit, like all out 10 out of 10, I am worthless for probably 48 hours. Yeah. However, I could hit a 9.5 and be worthless for the next hour or two and then still be functional right so it's always that interplay of like okay when is the time to go completely all out and knowing what you're going to pay for a cost and potential risk to injury versus backing off just a bit to still get a high enough level of performance and reducing some injury risk and still being able to function like a somewhat normal human well that's where this argument was like i said we, if we pull it back to the argument but there was a misunderstanding of research like there always is and then the body of research that connects to it like it's like in terms of specific studies on nasal breathing to powerlifting probably not that many but like there nope. is there, and, and again you're starting to make correlations and stuff but i mean that's where real world experience where the the strength side of things is like well we're experienced like shut the fuck up but like there like it depends on how they're using it but i mean i think that they're just poor at communicating how they're using it probably because they don't know and they're naturally good at it but again 
if it works, it's like they have skin in the game. I'm going to take, like, I would take your word over it. Like if you were doing my metrics and you saw it, I'd be like, yeah, that makes sense. Cause like you've looked at a lot of things. And I think that that loses value and on the certain end of that evidence-based spectrum. But at the same time, like the strength people can be pretty stupid and, and do well, him, Wim Hof breathing and drown themselves in the sink. So <laughs> here's the, like my, you know, I, the kind of thought I had too about this as we were talking too for, for power lifters, yeah. like you said, they don't do their cardio and why no. do they not do their cardio? Because they're 275 pounds and okay. every bit of cardio feels like a jujitsu match, right? Yeah. So if they were to nasal breathe, it's going to naturally, like Mike said with his crossfitters, it naturally keeps them in that zone two, maybe even zone one range. Well, keeps them so out of actually, And they'll yeah. actually do it because they're like, okay, yeah. I can actually, I can do this. Because, you know, if you're 275 or 290 pounds and you go for a jog, yeah, like, like you're going to be exhausted a quarter mile in. But if you go for a row and you nasal breathe, you're still gonna be a little tired, but it's not gonna be because you're gonna run too fast. Because a guy who's too nice sucks at running. Yeah, he's just gonna run too fast. He's, he's gonna do it. I do it. I'm only 200 pounds. Like I, I'm a terrible runner because I go out and run and I make it to the end of the block and I'm dying because I just basically sprinted because I don't want to jog. What's actually a zone <laughs> two? Because actually zone two for me is kind of like power walking. Like it's not that fast. Yeah, and people forget running like if you're a large mammal like you your mechanics probably suck not all of them there's some nfl freaks that are just scary but those are the freaks and the outliers um second the amount of impact you know four to six times your body weight which again you can prepare for that there's probably some things you can do to get better at that but to, to go out and just start doing it uh high amount of eccentric load and yes if you look at the research at high-end interference uh, mean doing cardio and weightlifting doesn't happen to a really, really high end, or if you smush them both back to back. However, running is a much higher level of interference than biking or rowing, yeah. just because biking or rowing, you're now offloaded more. It's primarily a concentric movement also. Mm -hmm. That's where it's, yeah, that's why I, that's why I love this. I, I was like, I, I remember I was like, Mike is the person, the voice of reason here. <laughs> But you're not on Instagram. Nobody wants to listen to the voice of reason. No, <laughs> no fun. No one wants to listen that it actually has merit. And then everyone wants to listen it has merit. But then you're like, yeah, but it's not that good. But it could be. And like, no one likes that answer either. They're like, I want it to be the best thing ever. And but the like, funny part is like, you can just test it, right? And if people yeah. would test this stuff for themselves, they would figure it out. Yeah, right? But people not, get too hung research. up in one area and don't want to change their testing and they'll just spend hours arguing about it which i don't know just go try it like if it works it works cool if it doesn't eh, you don't even have to understand the mechanism per se you well, that's know? why just i like the, try it out this is where I like and jeb might be on a different spectrum on this but like this is kind of why i like strong people and big people because like not that they're ahead of the game sometimes but it's like and some of them might be outliers but it's kind of i like the people who try dumb shit and it works Cause there is hints there like it, contextually oh, it might sure. be off, but you like you you can use it's usable like it's like this it, it did work why it worked and why they say it worked might be two different things but i like seeing that stuff because it's it's this just, is this is this is dean's bias showing through because he's tried all the dumb shit yeah, well why, but it, it like i said it's like <laughs> a lot of it like a lot of the stuff it's I, like, i love it's that like, about you because i don't have to try any dumb shit because you're doing <laughs> it's, 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 it's like and this is like this is not like real stats this is maybe my sets like maybe four to eight percent on all the things and i don't think they stack a lot of times i think that if it's a low a high leverage point a lot of the times like like i said with the cooling pack for that 
one Cajun thing, heat is a rate limiter a lot of times, just 8% is kind of what. So when it's usually a high leverage point, I find like you can squeeze six to 8%. But again, it doesn't stack and it's contextual based on the activity. So like, I'm not going to get a lot out of nasal breathing for powerlifting because I'm in fucking shape. So like, I'll get zero, I'll get like 1%. Right. Right. right? Yeah. But if you're like fat as fuck and you're like super strong, you don't do your cardio. And I say fat, but like, if you're like a 340 pound heavy power lifter, like you could get a lot out of that because your volume would go up because you're conditioned. And so yeah. like cardio doesn't suck in that respect, but I also get there with the walking. Like, why would I walk? I like do CrossFit and I run and I do all this stuff. I'm like, yeah, like I wouldn't walk either, but I'm talking about generally people don't walk. So like, fuck off. And so like, if you do CrossFit for your 20 minute workout a day, then you probably need to walk more than anybody else. Yeah, exactly. You know, if you're doing CrossFit four or six hours a day and you're a high level CrossFitter. Yeah. Don't, if you're a high level, like, like anything sport athlete, like all this stuff, like, yeah, like we're not talking about you. No one's talking about you. They all hate you. Like they all hate you. No one's talking about that. And you're not reading my Instagram posts. No, you're a high level athlete. (laughs) You're a high level athlete who is like science is stupid. Look at me. Like, so it's just, Oh, I love these arguments. but I think that comes back to kind of what we I guess so we talked we talked about at the beginning though is like so like we talk about these leverage points and walking and, and um and kind of coming around to this uh because we do see this this uh energy constraint thing which I've always observed in my clients especially because I've worked with a lot of people that CrossFit and and, and there's there's been a lot of back and forth over the past few years about whether there's really energy constraint happening everybody's probably about five last five years of like whether it's really a thing whether it's happening and i think now with a lot of the recent research everyone's kind of come to around to saying like yeah it looks like it's it's actually a a pretty a pretty regular occurrence um and so the way you know obviously we've been talking about for a long time is the way to backdoor this is through increasing steps isn't through increasing meat but there seems to be this like confusion because you know like like with a post saw the other day where someone was like walking is the best exercise and it's like well it's not exercise that's why it works i keep getting tagged in that one too it's like i'm like yeah good right on buddy i'm not getting in this argument because it always ends up bad well, it's like the intention's good. It's like at the point now where it's yeah. like, if your intention's good, like I'm not going like, to, there's no reason oh, to like, argue with whatever. It. Yeah, but but it's that point of like, when we talk with clients, and, and so it's a very hard um, discussion to have because it, at no point do I want to tell someone not to exercise. I'm like, no, no, exercise is probably the most important thing you can be doing because that, you know, but if if we're talking about trying to increase some kind of caloric output, some kind of without decreasing calories and we want to see the, that energy availability stay high utilizing something that's a non-exercise strategy is really helpful in here because if there is a constrained energy model that's taking place where we're losing our total daily energy expenditure like we we want to try to get that back in some way yeah i mean i think it's it's just movement right and you can, Dean can attest to this, like you can play around and find the upper threshold of how many steps you can recover from per day. But right. for most people, if you're generally halfway fit, it's not 3000. No, right? right. It's going to be, you know, a couple hours of walking a day, right? It's going to be relatively high. So it's something that anyone can do. You don't need much of a warm up. You can do it anywhere it fits in. And yeah, I mean, if, you're looking for walking to increase your aerobic fitness. Maybe you're the 330 pound power lifter, but for most people, it's probably not going to increase your aerobic fitness per se. 
But again, that doesn't mean it's it's worthless either, right? The answer is, uh, yeah, maybe you should walk to be like a normal human and then we can exercise too. That'd be cool. <laughs> yeah, and again, like, you know, coming back to like all the Amish research and the Industrial Revolution, all this stuff, it's like when people had movement-based jobs, it wasn't an issue. Like you didn't right. have to go for walks because you moved. You had no choice, day. right? You, you, you had choice. to move. Well, I do I do see that anyways, like you can, that's not true. I guess like I see some construction workers, but again, like the, the thing is, is like what gets wrapped up in this is like, you start talking about exercise and Mike dropped out, he'll come back, but you start talking about this additive model and then everyone thinks we forgot about food. Like, I think that's my main criticism of going after this stuff. It's like, no, I just want you to earn the opportunity for it to be about food. Because everyone thinks it's food no matter which situation they're in, whether they're in shape or out of shape. And it's like, well, like, that's fucking dumb. <laughs> it's just, well, it's not that helpful. Again, again, we've been trying to restrict food intake for 70, 80, 90, maybe, maybe more. You know, we could probably go back to, you know, early, you know, the early 20s and see attempts at restricting energy. And what occurs is that people just aren't able to do it long term. There's too many things stacked against them. And so if we can find a way that allows them to like maintain a healthier body weight without actively monitoring everything they eat, you know, just having some awareness, having some, some better, you know, choices, then why wouldn't we go after that? And, and again, everyone wants to talk about how it's food, but we look at, we look at the Amish research. It's, it's not the food there. Yeah. They crush right? Like they it, eat four thousand calories a day, and they're like, you know, same thing with the with the Bengali study. They eat it wasn't bullshit. the it wasn't the food; it was the cha- the difference in movement that made the difference in body composition. Well, that's where I like I I got spiked up on this. I know Mike will Mike will hopefully be back in, in a sec here, but I think it was like Krieger. I'm just trying to figure out because Krieger was posting. Um, yeah, he just posted about RMR uh, not being the uh, the thing about when people can't maintain weight loss. Yeah, like the, the, so, like it does change, but it didn't matter. Right, because it was yeah. like the better was, indicator. Movement. Yeah, mm-hmm. like and so to catch you up, we were we were just saying like the rate, like working out's good, walking's good, um, but Krieger posted a thing saying that it wasn't the RMR changes through dieting and losing weight that mattered. It was kind of physical activity and exercise. Like if you look at the spread, I can't. Oh I yeah, for bad way of explaining that. But it was yeah. just like it, it goes against the energy constraints thing because like everyone is just like like this is this is the thing you can't do this yeah 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 but like actually doing more is probably the best indicator it's not the only one there's like a spread and it's variable but like why would we not think of that and it's it's almost like silly that we're talking about it like, well to to that point i was listening uh eric, our good friend eric salazar was on um revive stronger so i've been listening to that because you know i care and he's just talking about the weight fest experiment thing and and that is really you know the whole thing is i mean that dude moves all the time but he's talking about like the jobs he's had in the past he's like the whole idea that he came is because he used to he was he pushed carts at, at walmart and he was like and then he did um and then he was like worked in a factory like carrying like heavy and he saw like his muscles grew more from that than the like you know arm workouts he was doing at the time he was like 18 but one of the things he said is you know as a natural bodybuilder he lost so much leg size in the in the off season because he was losing so much weight and he's like the idea with the weight fest was really just to kind of keep try to keep leg size on because he couldn't lift as much his his weight 
you know, weights and squats was going down quite a bit. He's like, so if on the daily, I could at least keep more tension on my legs, maybe I could keep some size on. And then he just found that he was able to eat. I mean, I think he was, I think he competed, he competes at like 140 pounds or something crazy and eating like, I think this last prep, he was eating 2,600 calories at the end. And I mean, striated glutes. I mean, the guy was shredded to the bone, but he owns a gym. He works, he, he walks around all day. He does his steps. Like he is constantly moving. Uh, and then the added weight obviously contributed to that. But I think like kind of this idea of it's, it's easier to sell less food because that's easy to, to quantify and to be like, okay, you're just going to eat less and we're just going to count it. Uh, when the just plethora of research shows that it's not sustainable and it, it doesn't work long term. Like my always big thing was like, it always comes down to like, you're going to go crazy at some point. Like you're going to do crazy town, but then whether it's hunger or like counting 100 versus 102 grams of chicken, something's going to go and snap. And it's probably been snapping for a long time. It's like, no one wants to talk about that. Like, it's like, it, it make like, and I know that like, that's, I don't even know if that's research. Like you can probably, Jeb probably has psychological stuff on that. But I mean, that's what I see is like, it just, it's not possible because they can't just be crazy for that long or neurotic. It's like, it's going to break. Well, Tommy Wood posted something that I love still. And I've been using this over and over again. Is like, if we pathologize food, we're going to run into problems. Of course. It's just like we pathologize everything in fitness. That's what we do. I know. <laughs> but that's what I mean. So it's just like the flip of the switch is like just do more fitness. I know, like obviously there's time restrictions and all this stuff, mm-hmm. but it's like it's like why would you why would we actively choose to be super hungry? And I don't know about the threshold because like the, what I've noticed, and again, I don't. This is kind of backed up by the the minimal high flux researches that they're less hungry overall, like both acutely and like longer term. But what I find is like, and, and this might be like in a lot of the apps that do this, it's like you would cut for 12 weeks and then you got to go maintenance and you cut and then the diet break. I don't find I need it because like psychologically, I don't know what it is, but once they get past a thir- certain threshold in calories, but they're still in a deficit, crazy town doesn't come. Like in an event, it, it always comes after the food gets cut at a drastic level. And I don't know what that is, but like, that's where like, I don't have to take people off a cut after 12 weeks. because Like they're eating a fucking enormous amount of food. They don't really want more food. They're like, and they don't really want less. They're like, yeah, like I'm good. Like, what is that? Like, is that just the mm-hmm. hunger cueing leptin shit? Or is it just like, like how psychological is it? Is it physiological? Like that's what I'm trying to, I guess, game plan. Yeah. I mean, my guess, and I haven't seen a ton of research on this, I know Ben's talked about this too, is that at higher flow rates, everything just seems to work better, like just across physiology in general, right? So one of the little hypotheses I have about physiology is that if you can have a higher flow rate, you're going to be better, right? So if we look at a not direct example, but like uh, blood glucose, Mm-hmm. right we've seen people eat you know i've had clients i have clients now they eat 400 grams of carbohydrates a day we've put you know 14 day or glucose you know testing on them glucose tolerance testing you name it they're fine they're also extremely active and they're they're moving a lot now if you have the opposite i've seen people who have some insulin resistance some hard time regulating glucose their income of glucose gets scrunched really really low and they seem to have more issues. Paradoxically, hmm. raising their carbohydrates and raising their activity level, whether that's 
insulin mediated uptake, GLUT4 translocation, non-insulin mediated uptake, who knows, right? They just seem to do better at that point. Yeah. So it just seems like whenever you kind of kink the garden hose, like, yeah, you get less flow through it. And there may be a time and a place to trying to step on stage with shredded glutes or hit a weight competition or class or whatever. But in my book, like that is going to happen at some point. So can we make that like, hopefully only the last six weeks or four weeks, right? If that starts occurring 16 weeks out, mm -hmm. uh-oh. This is either going to be a, a white knuckle ride that you know, most people aren't going to make, or yeah. it's just not going to be the, the best idea. Like, can you, yeah. Yeah. I wish I had I think, on this. Like, that's why I write Ben House, like, is going to try to do certain studies in this, but like, there's yeah. not enough of it. But like, there's I have enough, data. like, whatever my, my not research but i have enough examples to the point where it's not even like outliers where like if they're cutting on higher calories than the standard cut like usually by four or five hundred calories that like basically one meal like world of a difference like it's not even it's not even the same person like and i know almost to that fact if they get past a certain threshold they're gonna hate it and like obviously there's some variability there but like we have enough data working with enough people that there's usually norms in like with males, if they're over 23, 2200 calories, 2400 calories, if they're in that range or higher, like and the cutting, cutting, like, and, and we're not talking about extremes, like really overweight, but like, fuck, they're never hungry the whole goddamn time and they'll lose weight till their end point. Like, it's actually crazy. Like, and that's yeah. more what I like they're, and they don't have any crazy town. There's no, but you, you start crossing that 2000 calorie threshold for males, like, like now it's hard. It's like, fuck, I wish we could have some research to show that just so i don't have to like convince people that like i'm better because i also don't want to like do the wrong thing either but it works better <laughs> yeah i mean I, it, and again anecdotally i mean i look at my my strongman competitors and when i'm pulling them you know like we start cutting it's like 3500 calories and weight is just flying off of them yeah because well, it's not a cut. from 800 cards yeah because and they're in a deficit yeah right but we're just moving and and one of the things that i do with all of them and they're all like they all think i'm crazy is when i'm like yeah you need to you know get twelve thousand steps a day and again with competitors like this is very you know i, I don't talk a lot of, of course on my social media about competitors because um it's not the same like people i work with were you know creating autonomy and with my competitors i'm like no you want to win a world championship you're going to do this this is not a, up for debate <laughs> Like we're not we're not discussing this and so it's like hey you're gonna do this and they do it and they're like oh man i lost too much weight this week and i'm like okay we got to up your calories but you know the flow like, rates are up like i actually like the flow rate or flux rate yeah that's great like, we it's know like, they're up because they're they're doing it like because they're yeah. not they're not that most people aren't serious but like i know they're more serious <laughs> like it's better it's a better example in my opinion yeah and especially for performance like if I see like a male or female that's doing performance, that's on really low calories, like almost all the time, their performance is just yeah. popping where I've had them do like a higher flux and it's anecdotal, but their performance stays pretty good and they're still getting body comp changes. Right. Well, that's so it, it. Right. Because, yeah. you know, if you look at Susan Kleiner's stuff, like people were still performing well with low energy availability, but their body comp was not, ideal and so then they try the, especially women were trying to cut calories more and more and they were going more into that red s well, category you had yes i was gonna say we even had jose he, he works well he used to work with the american top team but now he's with Drew strong at their place but 
he was basically like, we didn't even talk about like our models and he was basically pushing a high flux model with their athletes. And, and maybe this is more on fatigue heavy sports, but you start dropping calories with when fatigue is high, like then like performance doesn't necessarily drop right away, but it will. But if you can hold that flow rate high, they're more likely to be able to deal with fatigue, which again, you can't see that visibly. And usually they're not seeing on the scale, but even when they're cutting, he's like, yeah, we cut with higher output and higher input. It's like, well, yeah, like, doesn't that make sense? But in those communities, jujitsu is one of them, like MMA, at least old school was like, you cut carbs, you cut calories, and then you just train hard. And like, I could, I, I bet injury rates are higher, performance is worse. And like, yep, yep. people are still doing that. Like the high level people, like, like Jeb's in jujitsu, like that's the first thing everyone does. They just cut their calories at 1200 as a 200 pound male. They're going to do training seven days a week, like in high fatigue training, not bench press, like fucking like killing each other for two, three hours. Like that's mind boggling. My is dog shit right now yeah. because I'm, I'm on a deficit and I don't think I'm, I mean, I'm obviously I'm, I'm not counting my calories, but I'm still probably 2,500 calories, but like train lifting and jujitsu five days a week, like. And I see it more I'm, with I'm the high. deloading every two weeks. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's where I liked when Jose came on on the mentorship to talk about it because, like, I'm I'm more interested now, obviously, with jujitsu, but like high fatigue rate stuff because, like, jujitsu is not a lot of work. Like when I look at it, even like, but like the fatigue is so high when you're like stressed and you're getting like punched, basically throwing, and like it's not a lot of work, but it's a lot of fatigue. That's where I noticed it personally. That's where like my threshold with steps was like fucking super like low because I, I suck but i need to eat more but it's just like that's where things get cool because context contextually that's a different story than bench pressing but jeb adds every time jeb has this we we go through this like three times a year i started up in jujitsu and i'm going to cut in uh, my recoveries down but really the only thing that changed was a couple hundred calories in jujitsu yeah and it's, it's jujitsu but I, I know that like i know that my gym performance is just not good and i it's just about maintaining now it's just mm. like it's like, but i just have to go in and just kind of it, it's for someone like me that likes to train to failure and like likes to crawl out of the gym yeah, throwing up like it's hard yeah yeah so but i don't i just i can't do that i i mean i like do like single leg shit and like you know dumbbell single arm like all the stuff that make fun of on the internet like that's well in, is that maybe this is the question for mike like is that like and i probably know your answer but is this where like increasing that flow rate to that like threshold of like especially when it's weight restricted or trying to restrict weight or get it down finding that highest flow rate or flux rate possible given like because there's more substrate or more food in, like this and i've always had this question there's more food in equal better performance even at the same body weight like if it's weight neutral or like you know what i mean like and yeah. even if outputs up a little bit because like output would still be up recoverability wise but i'm always on the point of like if they're eating six thousand calories versus three thousand calories and they're doing the same amount of work that work's going to be better yeah so i'm always looking at the balance of what's their performance what's yeah. their body comp and then what's a, a constraint on the the system or how do we measure stress and so i'll use heart rate variability and so by looking at those three, you can kind of get a pretty good idea where people are going. And I generally find if input and output are higher, even though let's say they're losing hypothetically a pound a week, mm -hmm. but they're doing that at 3,500 calories versus 2,100 calories, I'll take the 3,500 calorie person all day. Yeah. The hard part with that is most people are not professional athletes. Yeah. Right. So at some point you're literally going to 
like I find time is like the biggest restriction, assuming you're not training yeah. like an idiot and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Right. Cause it's like, Oh shit. Now I got to walk more. I have to eat more, which takes more time. I'm training more. Oh crap. Now for my HRV, not to go in the shitter, I probably need to sleep more. I probably need to look at my breathing yeah. more often. I need to, you know, maybe I can't work 10 hours a day, you know, on top of it. So it, it comes down to these, these trade-offs. And so not all clients I have, they're not all doing that because they have a life, they have kids, they have a job, right? Well, and so yeah. there you're kind of trying to balance what is going to be best for them in their situation because they're probably not going to sleep more. They're not going to put their kids up for adoption. They're not going to quit their job, right? So you have these other upon the system you have to live with. That was like my exact problem. And like, I'm the walk more, here on Instagram, <laughs> but it was like, I, they're like, I get this every once in a while. They're like, how, how many steps do you walk? I'm like, well, 78,000. Like, it was not 12,000. I'm like, yeah, but like, I, I'm better than you. Um, cause I, <laughs> I do more of the other stuff, but the rate limiter for me has always been food. It's always been food. And then now it's worse that I'm busy and I got kids and do, the, the time training and time, time walking where walking became the easiest thing to get to. Cause I could put it under my treadmill or sorry, I could put the treadmill under my desk and get, I could get 12,000 steps without even blinking. And, but I, I wouldn't eat. And so like, I just realized that about myself and just walk less. But I think like, that's a good way of looking at what your rate limiter is. And I would gather most people's rate limiter is actually the movement. Like it is time, but it's not food for most people. It's actually the, the movement piece, which is why I always push the exercise piece because most people aren't professional athletes, but if they took a little bit of more of that, approach they might be better um that's my bias but i mean like no one's yeah. really got a good argument yet for me that's why and, and for you guys and people that do jujitsu a fun experiment to do would be get a baseline of what your hrv is yeah and then when you do jujitsu can you look for efficiencies yeah can you get the same level of performance but can you pay attention to breathing pattern how often are you holding your breath are you breathing through your nose are you mm-hmm. breathing through your mouth do you feel because if you look at like super high level people in that area they to me they all look like they're completely stoned and are going to fall asleep but yet they'll choke you out in like four seconds flat right they all look like they're su- like any other high-end athlete they're like super relaxed like yeah whatever and then they just destroy people <laughs> well that's where like jiu-jitsu on other, is weird one. sorry go ahead I was say on the other end of the spectrum that's one of the funny things is that i i talked about with dean when he first started i was like the the thing you have to actually be careful of is your your risk averse behavior changes like nothing like i can get almost t-boned by a semi and my heart rate doesn't change because like every morning right. i'm sitting and someone's <laughs> like someone's literally choking me unconscious and i'm just like oh, yeah. a lot less like, as you get better yeah i don't <laughs> care like there's there's at no point when i'm like worried Dude. about it i'm like i'll just move around a little bit get comfortable and, there's like, a few gonna... things that i'm more scared of so like i'm less scared of people in general i'm like well i could more than likely kill anybody but because I've seen examples, my coach included, who can, I, I know like, Hey, I could kill a lot of people and I get someone who could kill me with his pinky. And so now I'm like second guessing. I'm like, wow, fuck. I hope he's not a, a brown belt or like a competitive brown belt versus a hobbyist or like it, fuck if he's a black belt, I'm fucking done. And so like, now I just know what people are capable of too. So I start less conflict, even though I'm more confident in conflict. So it's kind of, a weird, it's, it's like, yeah. I didn't know the world of like really good fighters and like that's just jujitsu like i i can only assume with mma like a ufc fighter even like the shittiest ufc fighter would literally kill 
basically everyone like with like the smallest the smallest weight class person i mean that's not true but anyways it's like there's some crazy fucking people now but if you're a white belt in jujitsu but you're a ufc fighter like you're gonna mangle like 99 percent of black belts yeah like so aggressive as well yeah, and there's just so much more involved. It's like you're good at. I mean, even you, you know, you have a white belt in jujitsu, but you're nasty. You're probably nasty at jujitsu. Like it just is. Yeah. But yeah, it's just that it's that thing of like when you can learn to be calm in a situation that you have absolutely no business being calm in, it changes perspective in a lot of things. And again, you talk about that nasal breathing, like that's a big thing. Like when I'm sitting there getting choked out, it's like. Well, I think that's where the skill is. Like I'm not looking at. Yeah. If I look at longevity purposes, like jujitsu is good for staying alive yada 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 if you can get through that hump which i'm probably not even close to yet but a lot of them are like super like a lot of the highest level people that i see at jujitsu they're so like chill like most mm-hmm. of the time i've seen them like go crazy but like that's probably good for life because they got through the hump they spent their 10 years putting in the work a 10-year investment could prolong the back end as long as they don't do stupid shit and maybe that's wrong because like again injuries and all this stuff but like i think that that's a good skill to learn because that goes back to why you would learn on nasal breathe to learn to chill the fuck out because not everything's a stress <laughs> like yeah and i think you see that in all professions too like i listen to some crazy death metal music and the people that have been doing it for you know decades like you meet them and talk to them they're like 99 percent. they're like the most chill people you've ever met in your life but you see them on stage you're just like Oh my god, that guy's gonna kill someone. <laughs> a lot of again, lot you can of, oscillate back weed. and forth. A lot of again, he's a lot of weed. Oh yeah, there's, I mean, there's I listen to so too. much. I listen to so much stoner metal. You know these. Well, dudes, there you like, go. Yeah, I, I, I love like the dudes will take like there's like Instagram posts where they like a rip and a riff where they just pull a bong load and then play. Some... <laughs> <laughs> and it's the best. It's, it's flexibility it's a mix model yeah. <laughs> all right so we are closing up into yeah. to closing time here i don't want to keep you mike thank you for your time uh is there anything you want to because i know uh when are we going to have this out dean next next know. week well because i know that the medflex certification is open right now when, yep. when yeah. are you closing that up yeah so as of this recording it's open now through june 13th oh at sweet midnight we'll get it up then yeah, so 2022, and then com. And if you have any questions on it, obviously let me know. And yeah, it's uh, looking at mostly nutrition and recovery. So eight different interventions, obviously neat walking is one of them, but stuff from protein, carbohydrates, fat, um, sleep. And then you understand the big picture of metabolic flexible dieting. And then each intervention has a technical one. And then there's five action items for each one. So you learn the research, the context, and then also in the system of how to explicitly use it with someone. Because I found eh, some programs that are really good on research are not so good on the actions. And some programs that only have actions are really stupid actions. So I'm <laughs> trying to have both of them. <laughs> so with that, yeah, we'll try and get this thing up soon then so we can get uh, make sure that we, we uh, get people some access to that because it's um, obviously... Mike has been a huge influence on both of us and uh, you know, we think that his stuff is the best. So you guys should too. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thanks for coming out, buddy. Thank you for tuning in to compound performance radio. If you liked this episode, please be sure to like share, subscribe, and drop us a review. We'll see you next time.